Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Darylise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. And I'm Zach James, occupying stolen Lenape lands as well. Thank you for joining us today for our third Q&A episode of season two. Yeah, this in-depth exploration spans the last three weeks of episodes. So um, if you've been listening along, you will have heard Black history from slavery to segregation, Black pain, the enduring impact of racism, and Black joy, success, culture, and community. Those three episodes were really meaningful for us to produce. And if you haven't already listened to them, we really hope that you'll take the time to listen because today in this Q&A, we're going to be delving into that content and so much more. Indeed, Darylise. And the last three episodes have really been some of my favorite across both seasons. And I really appreciate that we split them into three episodes. Yeah, you know, I feel like we could have done 33 episodes and still had more to talk about. I mean, these were really rich, a really rich exploration. Indeed, indeed. And today we're joined by an incredible and influential guest expert who will have a lot to share about the subject, Dr. Jonathan Howe. Dr. Howe's research centers broadly on the intersection of race, sport, and education. Within these intersections, Dr. Howe focuses on Black male college athletes as well as Black coaches and athletic administrators. His research with Black male college athletes centers race along with identity development and self-presentation. Related to Black athletic coaches and administrators, Dr. Howe examines their racialized experiences as they operate in predominantly and historically white spaces. Dr. Howe has presented his work at national and international conferences, and his work has been published in numerous academic journals. Dr. Howe earned his PhD in educational studies with a focus on higher education and student affairs from the Ohio State University. He obtained his master's of science degree in sports management and bachelor's of science degree from the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you for being here with Darylise and me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Jonathan, we are so excited to connect with you. It's really meaningful. And, you know, one thing that stood out to me about your work and the bio that Zach just read, it says you examine racialized experiences of those who operate in predominantly and historically white spaces. So can you share a little bit more about how you got into that work and what kinds of things that work entails? Yeah. So really what got me into that research is my own experiences. And so a lot of times when uh, we look at research and scholars who are researching particularly uh, things based in identity, we often call it me search. And so I saw myself how I grew up. I grew up in a, a predominantly white area, country part of Texas. Well, I guess Texas, all of Texas is country, but grew up in uh, rural East Texas. So I was in predominantly white spaces all my life. And so then going into the collegiate setting at the University of Texas and getting to um, work with the University of Texas football team, which has a predominantly black male student athlete population, as well as at the time was a predominantly black coaching staff. And so seeing that what they were going through resonated with me and my experiences growing up being in predominantly white settings as well. And so that really just encouraged me to be able to go and investigate some of these things on a scholarly level. And so what that looks like is research, focus groups, observations of how Black individuals conduct themselves in predominantly white spaces. 
that leads to some of my most recent research, which looks at self-presentation. And so how are particularly Black men showing up in predominantly white spaces? Are they altering who they are in order to fit a narrative, in order to counter a specific narrative that we are situated in when we talk about whiteness and white spaces? And so that research and what that looks like varies, but it's really just interrogating how you are situating yourself within predominantly white spaces. Do you feel like you have to alter yourself in order to fit in, in order to feel safe in these spaces? And so uh, really interesting uh, work that goes on and really interesting data that that comes out of that research as well. Yeah, and thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking about me-search because I think that that is something that many people who are passionate about doing work that is altering the social fabric, right? Like I think it often comes from this place of recognizing a need, which we can only really do through personal experience and then realizing that actually there's others that are in those same predicaments, right? And going out and like being willing to do the work, not just for oneself, but also to support others in those similar circumstances. And, you know, I appreciate you talking, Jonathan, about in academia specifically and the space of academia, or the space of academia rather, you know, and something that stood out to me in Sadie Lewis George gave an interview, and this is something I hadn't really thought about, but she spoke about how desegregation created a host of problems that aren't often talked about. And she talked about the lack of nurturing for Black academics and education and how HBCUs helped to work against that and stress the importance of representation among teachers for students. And for me, that was a big realization that I hadn't necessarily thought about the consequences of desegregation. And I'm wondering if there's been things that for you in doing this research, you've realized more and more. And then I guess beyond that, I I sort of have so many questions, but beyond that, you know, like what's something that you wish more Black people understood about their needs within historically white spaces? And then like, what about white folks? Like what's important for them to know about these historically white spaces? So I know that's a lot of questions that I threw at you, but just make of it what you will. I guess there's a couple of ways that I can take that. I think first and foremost that uh, we talk about desegregation and really what's sort of, I said, repurposed when we talk about the role of HBCUs. Specifically, my research really focuses on race and sport. And so if you look at um, what's happened within college sport recently and, and Deion Sanders at Jackson State, he got the number one recruit in the nation to flip from, uh, from Florida State, which is a, a historically white institution, to Jackson State. HBCU, which is sort of very uncommon in today's athletic landscape. And so you're starting to see this narrative of HBCUs really shift back to what they were founded upon. And that is really nurturing, cultivating a rich Black experience and a rich, you know, not only educational experience, but also a cultural experience too. And so you're starting to see that narrative start to come back up. But there's always going to be this counter narrative that goes with that as well. And so just as as much as we've seen the, the rise of HBCUs and sort of that significance being placed back on HBCUs, we've also seen the counter narrative of, oh, well, HBCUs can't do this for you or HBCUs have a lack of resources in this area. So even though we're, we're still trying to lift ourselves up, there's always this counter force that's there as well. So I think that's important to know when we have this conversation. But think about specifically at HWIs. It's very difficult to try to create that HBCU environment at an HWI just by way of structure. 
and the systems that are in place. But when we talk about, well, what should we think about in HWIs? What should white people think about? What should black people think about when they're in HWIs? It's really just trying to replicate that system of nurture and that system of care. I think too often in the HWI setting, it's more about business. Where at HBCU, it's more about, oh, well, it's more of a family atmosphere, I would say that. I grew up on the HBCU. My mom worked at an HBCU, but I've gone to uh, historically white institutions for my educational career. And there's, there's definitely a contrast with how I was raised on the HBCU and seeing students being able to be essentially family members of the personnel that's on campus, of the professors that are on campus, because there's this system of care. Whereas in the HWI, it's, it's all about money. It's all about the consumerism part. Um, of education. And so I know that's sort of a roundabout answer to some of your questions, but when we talk about HBCUs versus HWIs, that system of, of care and nurture is of the utmost importance. And when you go into predominantly white spaces, especially someone like me being in predominantly white spaces my whole life, when you get into that situation, you don't always know and recognize that you need that care or that that care and nurturing is important. Um, and so it's almost this notion of, well, you don't know what you don't know. And so if, if I'm a, a Black individual and I've been in predominantly white spaces my whole life, I don't necessarily know that that nurturing or care of other Black individuals is important to me. And so I think we have to be cognizant of that. And those people who have been in predominantly Black spaces and know that, that importance are able to then bring that into white spaces for other Black people as well. Wow. Got you. So, John, I spent a lot of my early years in predominantly white spaces. And to that point, I kind of fit in and was fairly popular without really feeling fully included. But there's a, a big difference between, you know, my own anecdotal experiences and realizing that they are truly common for others. So can you share um, about your research findings and how often other black folk aren't truly incorporated or included in these academic spaces? I would say it's it's quite frequent um, when we see that. It, it's sort of this insider-outsider perspective to where you feel included to an extent, but at the end of the day, that sort of inclusion is often surface level. And so you feel included because, oh, well, we want diversity or we want to look good. We want to seem like we have representation. But what does that really mean? Where is that inclusivity part of it? Oftentimes, what I tell my students, and when we're talking about research, right, diversity and inclusion are two separate things. And so we can have them there, and we can have you know a large population of racialized minorities, but that doesn't mean that we're being inclusive and creating environments that are going to allow them to succeed. And so within my research, oftentimes what you see, especially with Black male college athletes who are bringing in millions and millions of dollars for these institutions, is that, okay, well, you like me and you appreciate me as long as I'm doing well for you on the playing surface, but where's that care? Where's that, you know, holistic development aspect of it when we're not playing or even when I graduate, right? What's that support like for me when I come back? When you think about academia, it's, it's so crazy with the structures that are in place. And so, for example, you can hire an influx of, of Black professors, but are you giving them roles? Are you giving them a seat at the table to influence change? on a systemic level? Are you giving them a voice to be heard? And is the department chair, the dean, whatever, are they really taking that information into account and putting resources in place to really cultivate a system of care? And so to answer your question, I think that oftentimes what I see is that influx of surface level care. But when we start digging in to the weeds of things, we don't really see that care 
across the board. Oh, gosh. The emphasis on the word care, I think, is so important. And Jonathan, you shared about community care and feeling enveloped and and feeling supported. And I'm thinking about one of the very early interviews I did last season was with Dr. Howard Stevenson, who does a lot of work with racial literacy and cultural competency. And I remember at the very beginning of our uh, interview, he said to me, you know, Darylise, you really need to practice self-care in order to do this work. And I have to admit, I didn't pay any attention to what he said. I was just like, okay, you know, thanks for that. I'm going to go continue to work at my sort of like very fast pace and not take care of my own inner emotional experience and not lean on others for support. And I paid for that. And I know Zach and I have had conversations behind the scenes that we both tend to kind of be the ones that other people go to and we tend to have more struggles with self-care. And I'm just wondering, Jonathan, if you can talk a little bit from your own lived experiences and, and from the work that you do about some of the ways that a community can care for people and then also some of the ways that people in the absence of that community of care can care for themselves and and or go seek that nurturing because I think it's helpful for people to have some concrete examples. Yeah, absolutely. For me, that community of care was a little different because as I mentioned, I, I grew up in predominantly white spaces and I didn't really have a lot of Black individuals, a lot of that Black care until I went to the University of Texas at Austin, which is interesting because the historically white institution but I was able to get involved and connected with the network of excellent Black men. The first time I had seen Black PhDs, Black lawyers, right, in a room, you know, willing to talk to me. And then that created a system of care for me, of like-minded, of people who look like me, uh, individuals. And so uh, my community of care is a little different because, you know, we talk about this insider-outsider perspective that I touched on a second ago. For a lot of the, my life, I felt like that insider-outsider to where there was a, a system of care around me from my family. Um, there was also a system of care around me from the town that I grew up in because we were a very small town, town about 1,200 people. So very sort of tight-knit community. But again, I was sort of this fly in a cup of milk. And so you know, at the end of the day, I knew that people cared about me, but I also knew that those people who cared about me didn't really, you know, recognize my experience and how my experience was different from theirs. And so when I got to University of Texas and I was finally around people who grew up like me, who looked like me, we were able to have real conversations. We were able to, you know, talk about, well, what does it mean to be Black in the white space? We were able to have real discussions about that. We were able to have, you know, real discussions about how to sort of navigate the academic, you know, side of things. And so, Beyond just the you know representation part, it's of the utmost importance to have that community around you that so that they can uplift you. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest things from being in a predominantly white setting to having people who look like me is that they understand and recognize the importance of uplifting, mm-hmm. where that wasn't necessarily the case when I was you know had a community of white people around me because. Well, to them, they didn't really have to go through the same things that I had to go through. And so they didn't really emphasize this this notion of uplifting, of empowering one another. And so when we talk about having this community, I think that's really important. But when you don't have that community, it's okay because we live in a world where we think taking time to ourselves or practicing on our own sort of mental health and well-being that we're being selfish. And so if I'm not working 
and, and it's really hard too within within academia because it's like, oh, I, I can always be doing research. I can always be doing this. I can always be doing that. I can always prep for a lecture and improve my lecture. And no one's telling me what to do with my time. And so it seems like I'm being selfish when I take time off and when I don't do anything for a day or two, or if I, you know, don't work for a week because I just need to reset. It feels like I'm losing sort of a position in my job or I'm falling behind people and I need to make that up. And so when you don't have that community of care around you, I think we just have to recognize that it's okay to be selfish if that's how we want to put it. And and being selfish is going to make you better in the future. And so being selfish and taking care of your mental health is going to allow you to be a better partner in the future. It's going to allow you to be a better teacher or better whatever your occupation is. It's going to allow you to be better and to pour that much more into whatever you're doing. And so we just have to understand and get past this mental block of that, oh, taking a step back is somehow going to make me less than or weaker in this specific situation. That's such a good point, Jonathan. Thank you for sharing that. Now, one thing I am curious about. So over the last three episodes, every speaker in the episodes talked about the importance of education and of changing our education system. So can you share a little more about your views on education and institutional racism and how that plays together? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear and it, it's, it's a really good time to have this conversation because we see what's happening sort of from a political standpoint, when we talk about education and we talk about this notion of revisionist history and sort of rewriting history, the attack on critical race theory, which isn't stuff that's not critical race theory is being lumped into it. And anything that talks about race or doesn't center the perspectives of white people is sort of seen as invalid. And so for me, my, my perspective on education is that we need to challenge the systems that are in place. And so for me, it is having those tough conversations from a K through 12 perspective. When we think about uh, the systems in play as well, oftentimes we try to provide Band-Aid solutions to deep wounds. And so what I mean by that is that, oh, well, we see inequities within the education system. So if we look at you know, specific school districts getting more because of property taxes or, or whatever the case may be. We may throw a solution on there that seems like it's going to work, but we don't solve the root problem. And so uh, we have to be able to, I don't want to say dismantle the system necessarily because it doesn't always take that, but in some cases it does take the you know, breaking down of structures, but that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. If I come in and I tell you one thing about uh, slavery. I've been teaching you one thing about slavery 20 years as an educator, but then all of a sudden someone comes in and says, hey, that's wrong. You're likely to get defensive about that. And that's likely to, especially if I'm a white individual, that's likely going to seem like, oh, some power is being taken away from me or what I've been told about my history. And essentially white people have been superior, the superior race for you know eternity. Uh, all of a sudden, now we look bad. And so we feel like some of our power has been diminished. And so it's very hard to to confront these issues. But in order for there to be equitable change, we do have to sort of dismantle some of these structures that are in play. Yeah, right. And I love that you talked about how sometimes it requires dismantling and other times it doesn't. I think sometimes people get so threatened. It's like, oh, we've got to throw out every single thing and start from scratch. And what I hear you saying too, Jonathan, is that we just have to be willing to examine every single system and examine the truths that we might have been, what we might have perceived as truth previously and be willing to take a more holistic viewpoint and be willing to have 
more constructive and deep conversations. Certainly it's like trying to put band-aids on amputations and it just has not been working. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, some people want to, I'm a critical scholar by nature. And so I sort of told this line between trying to change within a system that already exists versus then just breaking it down and starting completely over. But you know, as you mentioned, we just have to be able to examine that. And we are, we have to be able to have a conversation about that before we can even start. And so I think sometimes when we also miss the nail is that sometimes we want to dismantle things, but other people aren't willing to have that conversation. So it's, it's also hard to dismantle something when you don't have the power to do so. And so we have to be able to confront those people who have the power to do so, but also try to involve them in a way in which we can work together to either dismantle or to work within the system as well. What will it take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one? Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better Red, white, and blue Really appreciate that. You know, something that I was struck by throughout the course of the interviews that I did for these three particular episodes was that I came into conversations, and I guess maybe this is my own bias, but expecting people when I asked the question about, you know, like, what have some of the worst moments of racism been in your life? What are some of the worst moments of prejudice or bias you've experienced? I think I expected people to talk a little bit more about overt instances of violence or name calling or things like that. But overwhelmingly, the answer that people gave was that the prejudice of low expectations was some of the most painful thing that that they had to endure. And often it was the prejudice of low expectations within an academic setting and like what people experienced as a concrete ceiling. And so I'm wondering if you can speak about whether that's something you've come up against and personally and or professionally in your work where you're seeing it, other people come up against that. Yeah, Absolutely. I definitely have experienced that, especially, I mean, I keep going back to the fact that I was in this, you know, country, predominantly white area, but that was something as well. I was second in my class, my graduating class, and it was always a surprise, you know, it was like, oh, well, here's Jonathan, he's a salutatorian, then you see everyone's eyes get big. Um, And so sort of a surprise that I was doing well, and I didn't end up going to the University of Texas, and it's like this, oh, wow, conversation, and it's kind of hard to navigate that because it's like, well, on one hand, you think that, you know, they are excited for you. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, why is this a surprise? Why is this something that is shocking to you? Why can't I have the sort of the same expectations that you have for your own kids or, or anyone else in the community? And so that's definitely something I've dealt with. I, I still deal with it now. Um, you talk about what work is being valued, what work is seen as top tier quality work is often work that white men started doing in academia hundreds of years ago, right? And that's what is seen as the standard. But when you have someone coming in who's doing work that sort of counters that, who has someone who's doing critical work, who's doing qualitative work, that may not be valued as much as sort of the numbers game is is valued. And so even with that, 
right? It's this perception of, oh, well, you can't do this kind of work. And so you have to resort to doing this work. And that's what is, is helping you out. But it's always seen as lesser than. And so I think as, as um, Black individuals, especially within academia, but always in other facets of life too, you kind of understand that that notion is there, but it doesn't stop the hurt, right? It doesn't stop it. You know, and I will quote, you know, I, I go to church. I was at church yesterday and the, the preacher said, you know, there's the, no weapons formed against me shall prosper verse. And that means what it means, right? It means that no weapon against you will prosper, but that doesn't mean that it won't hurt a little bit. So it's not going to completely destroy you. It's not going to prosper and, and take you down, but it doesn't mean that you may not have to endure some pain, right? And so we may know that the expectations are low. And I know going into a situation, I'm not expecting someone to expect me to do well. But then when I do well and their response is, oh, wow, or it's shock or even something that may be overtly racist comes out, it doesn't diminish the hurt that, that it causes for a second. I may have gotten better at sort of confronting those issues and not being hurt quite as much, but that hurt still never goes away. It still just sort of eats at you. I use it to motivate me, but sometimes it may hurt a little bit too much and I have to take a step back and try to heal myself. I know some of the you know, interviews were talking about healing, this healing process. And so, you know, we have to be able to take a step back and be able to heal from that in order to move forward. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable and explaining. And I wonder something that I think is really important to think about that what you just said made me think about is like this juxtaposition of pain and joy, right? So here you are, the salutatory, and this should be a really joyful and exciting moment in your life. And and I'm just using that as one of the examples that you provided. But like, there's also that pain of feeling underestimated. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, if you can talk a little bit about how to navigate this line between the juxtaposition of pain and joy, because I think that's one thing that comes up again and again in the work that we do and the the line that we tried to navigate for these episodes is that pain matters. And I think that if we overemphasize pain, sometimes we can miss out on the beauty and the purpose and the achievement and the joy and the resilience that people are are exhibiting, but also overemphasizing the joy and the beauty and the purpose and the resilience can miss out on the pain of those moments along the way. And so how do you navigate that both in your work and also in your personal life? So for me, it's it's sort of going back to this notion of you have to confront it. And so the the pain that's there, I can't keep pushing it to the back burner because eventually it's going to come out in a way that I don't want it to. And so we can have joy and we can have joy that sort of exceeds our expectation as well. But if we don't confront that pain, we're never going to be able to reach that full potential of joy or we're going to be able to shield that that pain until one day something just sort of pushes you over the edge, right? And, and people have different ways of dealing with pain, but we must be able to confront it. Confronting it doesn't mean, again, that it's going to go away. It just means that you're able to sort of take it in, take a step back, process it in whichever way you process it, but it's going to allow you to then be better. And so I think about it as a cup, right? If, if my cup is you know, half full of pain, right, that leaves less room for the joy, right? But if I'm able to empty my cup of that pain that I have, 
I have so much more room for joy. And so we, we have to be able to confront the pain in order to exceed the joy that, that is out there for us to, uh, to experience. And that joy oftentimes has a, a role in mitigating or suppressing that pain because joy feels so good. Joy feels great. We're so excited to, to reach our goals or to do whatever that you're doing that makes you happy and experience that joy. But it can only block it for so long. Eventually, that pain is going to come through. But there's no way to also, I, you know, I'll sort of wrap up the, the answer with this. There's no way to fully eliminate pain. And a little bit of pain may be good. A little bit of pain, a little bit of pressure, as I like to do, I like to use it to motivate me. Right. I, I try to use the pain that I have to motivate me to do better, uh, to motivate me to prove someone wrong, even though that's not really my goal. My goal is not to always prove someone wrong. I look at it as a challenge. When someone doesn't think that I can do something, I'm going to prove you wrong and do it. Um, and oftentimes that comes, you know, with sort of a racialized notion, you know, underneath it as well. I fully agree, Jonathan. Um, I've used that same pain as motivation in my past. and. I feel the tough thing is sometimes it can take folks towards that motivation angle and also it can take folks the other direction and have them be depressed or quit. So I fully get it. And as you know, Darylise, I love me some story time. So Jonathan, could you share us a story, whether it be personal or professional, whether it's painful or joyful or somewhere in between, share us a story and let us know how that kind of shaped the work you do now with others. I guess I'll do one, you know, based on recency. And so you know, we were talking before I I recently graduated with my PhD. And to me, that was a joyous occasion because it wasn't like when I was graduating, I wasn't smiling ear to ear necessarily, but it was almost a sense of relief because I had finally made it. And my mom, but thankfully my mom was able to be there, right? Uh, my mom was uh, a single mom raising my brother and I. And so being able to accomplish that goal it was sort of a collective journey, right? It wasn't my PhD, it was our PhD. And that was something that, you know, I wrote in my acknowledgements of my dissertation, right? This wasn't necessarily just for me. This is for all of us. And so when we talk about joy, right, all the, the pain, whether that was racialized pain or whether that was just the pain of going through the PhD journey, all of that pain was sort of was gone at that point. And so that's you know, a moment in which joy can sort of take away that pain because, you know, it's over. All, all, everything that I went through to get to that point was worth it. And to be able to see the smile of my mom and then my grandma was not able to be there, but I flew back to Texas and I took my, my graduation regalia there and I took pictures with her and to see her smile as well and to see her, thankfully, to be here still to see me accomplish that goal is just something that sort of you know, insurmountable. That's so awesome. And, and I've had those same feelings. You know, we don't just do it for ourselves. I think it kind of harps back to when we were talking about the community earlier, when myself and I'm sure many Black folks try to overcome various hurdles, we're doing it with that motivation energy of our entire community, not just, you know, our, our solo being. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. 
As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming, to faculty education, to collaboration with various corporations, and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Switching gears just a little bit, can you share about some of your professional heroes and influences? Like, who are some of the folks that inspire you? And I'm sure you're your mother and grandmother are in that circle as well. But tell us a little bit about uh, some of your uh, influences. Yeah, absolutely. Family family is one of the number one influences. But I will go back to one of my previous answers. When I talked about being at the University of Texas. And so being around Black excellence, Black male excellence, that was the first time I was around it. But they have guided me, whether that's through direct mentorship or whether that's from me watching from afar and seeing what they're doing on their journeys. And so my plan was not to go get a PhD. But then when I got to University of Texas and I saw that, I didn't even know really what the PhD was about. Mm-hmm. I knew you had a doctor, a medical doctor. I knew a PhD was a thing, but I didn't know what that journey meant and what that meant for you as a career. And so, you know, I take a class with, you know, one of the people I look up to, his name is Dr. Leonard Moore. He was 
used to be the vice president of the University of Texas, but he's still there as a faculty member. He teaches a class now. It sort of changed when I was there. It was race in the age of Obama. Now it was race in the age of Trump. And then now I think it believe it's race in the age of, of Biden. And he also teaches a class called Black Power Movement. So seeing him up there, seeing him be authentic, seeing him not really caring. Um, and this is something that I think about often is uh, this notion of protecting whiteness. And I think even when we show up in spaces, we sort of shield ourselves or only present part of ourselves in order to protect whiteness. But to see him you know, on stage lecturing and not caring about protecting whiteness was something that was sort of uh, it was empowering to me. It was something that was sort of revealing. It's like, okay, it, it, it's okay and it's great to be Black and to be your authentic self. Um, and so Dr. Leonard Moore is definitely at the top of my list. Um, also, Dr. Darren Kelly, who was you know one of my advisors at the University of Texas, who's done a lot of great things as well. Uh, and then Dr. Darren Roberts, who was actually from my neck of the woods. I was born in Mount Pleasant. He's from Mount Pleasant, Texas. He went to Harvard Law. He coached in the NFL, coached at the college level, and is now back at the University of Texas teaching, and he does a lot of entrepreneurial work as well. So seeing him, not only did I see Black men at the University of Texas, but then I was able to see a Black man from my area be able to make it and be able to be successful. I mean, he he's doing well. He's a published author. He, he does speaking engagements. And so being able to see them, to see their success um, that's something that I continue to look at and continue to sort of model myself after. And so we talk about professional heroes. I don't look too much, you know, in media, of course, like I want to, you know, I look for, for other black individuals in the media as sort of inspiration. But what I really look to as far as my heroes sort of in a professional sense are those who are really on my line and who have sort of made it in their career as academics. And I, I can be able to look at them and say, hey, that's where I want to be in the future. Oh, I love that answer. Awesome. And you know, Jonathan, it reminds me of something that Will Toms spoke about, which is exactly what you were talking about too, which is being able to see someone's trajectory who might be, you know, a few steps ahead of you or a little further down that road or whatever. And to be able to say, you know, I can do what they've done, or I can, you know, to have that sort of positive role modeling, because I think success leaves clues was how Will Thomas put it, right? And so to be able to kind of suddenly have things be accessible because of seeing what you deem Black excellence and like, and following in those footsteps, which you may have followed anyway, you know what I mean? But to be able to really have that nurturing and that support and those people that are going to uplift you and sort of hold you high and exhibit that authenticity and care, I think is is really important for people to be able to look at others who are doing in spaces what they might want to do and then be able to replicate that. And I think that's one of the reasons why overemphasizing whiteness is so problematic is because then people who aren't white can't see that path of success for themselves because it's not the same path. It's different. You know, people are up against different things. Yeah, absolutely. And the overemphasis on whiteness, I think, it definitely does us a disservice. It does racialize minorities a disservice because as you said, we can't really see ourselves and we're altering ourselves in order to fit this standard. And the standard that was once set for us is not the standard of excellence. The standard that was set for us, you know, historically has been to keep us inferior of. And so we are putting a cap on our success when we defer to whiteness or when we try to protect whiteness because the standard that whiteness set for us is not the standard of excellence. And so we have to get past that and really be authentic and push into 
this blackness per se. You mentioned, you know, the standard being set in history and and I wonder like how do you celebrate your own history and where you are and and where you come from and are there ways that you celebrate or honor that like tangible ways? If I'm being honest, it's difficult for me and it's something that I sort of go back and forth with because again, being in this predominantly white setting, I'm motivated to to continue going and to continue going forward and being successful because I do want to sort of rewrite this narrative of what it means to be black from Big Sandy, Texas. I want to do that, but also there's some some conflicts there because as I've grown, I've become more educated. I've you know, become more aware of some of these things. Again, when you're in this situation, you're sort of shielded. You're in this bubble. But then sort of when you break out of it, you're like, okay, well, this I don't have a singular experience, right? Some other people have similar experiences as me. And no, oh, now there's this name for it. I know that this was sort of microaggressions or racism or whatever the case may be. And so it's, to me, it's, it's being proud of where I'm from, but it's also sort of toying a line with, well, how do I confront some of these things that I don't think I was able to reconcile when I was in high school or when I was in junior high? Like I went through some of this stuff. I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know how to process it at the time. And so I'm motivated to want to change this narrative and want to do good for, you know, where I'm from, Big Sandy, Texas, the East Texas area, and want to sort of bring a positive light there. But it's also, well, what are my feelings, right? And have I been able to reconcile my feelings with where I'm from in order to then be proud of where I'm from as well? I'm proud of my family that's there. I want to do well for their name. But at the same time, there's some issues that come up and I've definitely seen them with, you know, the past elections and some of the narratives that have come out. And I'm like, hang on, these are the same people I went to high school with. Right. And so how do I sort of reconcile that? Like, oh, we used to be boys. You know, we were cool. We were close. I was over at your house every night. Like, but then this is some of the stuff that comes out. It's like, well, oh, is this how you always felt? And so for me, it's about sort of confronting some of those things being able to be at peace personally. And then I think I'll be able to move forward repping for the area that I'm from. But I think for me, it's always about family and that's what keeps pushing me forward. Mm. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Now, John, can you give us a little bit more about the work you're doing professionally and personally? Just share us a little bit about what you got going on. You know, within my research, I work a lot with college athletic departments and uh, with my research with them. And so 
uh, you know, working with Temple currently are, are trying to start a project looking at racial battle fatigue in black athletes. And so looking at sort of this cumulative psychological and physical stress that comes with being a racialized minority. And so what is that doing to you? What are sort of your responses to this racial battle fatigue and being in these racialized spaces? Um, and so really just doing it all to try to create a better environment for uh, black college athletes, but also not putting the onus on them to say, hey, this is their experience. And so as a, as a scholar, as a professional you know, scholar, I see myself as a storyteller and the change agent on behalf of the participants of my research. And so the black male college athlete, just from a systemic standpoint, has less power. And I am not associated with these athletic departments, with the specific organization, with the team. And so I use my voice to represent them and try to, you know, inflict change, positive change within the athletic environment. And so I guess the ultimate goal of that is to say, hey, here's the narratives of these individuals. Here's what we need to do in order to change and make their experience uh, a little bit better. And so we think about that. That's some of the work that I have going on. Uh, but I also do, you know, some consulting uh, with the athletic departments as well, as well as professional organizations just in this DEI space. And so uh, definitely stay engaged in that regard as well. Wow, Jonathan, thank you so much. And you know, Zach and I are definitely going to have more questions for you. But I think this is a good point to move into some listener questions, because we have some people who called in and emailed in with questions that I would love to hear your answers to. Awesome, Darlis. Yeah. And as I cue those up uh, to play for Jonathan and our listeners, um, just want to say, if you're listening to this podcast now, you're not already receiving our newsletter. We hope you'll go to the DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com website and sign up. All newsletter subscribers have a chance to win a signed copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and the accompanying workbook during each and every Q&A episode. Yeah, absolutely. Please connect with us through the website. And thank you to those who subscribe and send in questions. We've got more great questions to explore today. Thanks to you, the listener. So, uh, Zach, let's start with the first one, which is Jess calling in from Denver. Hi, my name is Jess from Denver. The importance of the individual story resonated with me in the first episode in this recent series on Black experience. With that said, how can we work to amplify Black voices locally in our communities in order to make them stand out? Thank you. Uh, that, that is a great question. And I think to start, we have to be our own support system. I've learned this before that no one is going to do it for you. And so oftentimes you have to do it for yourself. And so I think amplifying our voices means creating, building that community that we talked about before, right? So that you can empower one another. And so there's strength in numbers. And so you have to find people who are going to empower you. And I think when we talk about sharing voices, you also have to be cognizant. It's important to share voices, but it's also who are you sharing those voices to? Because some people can take that and take your stories and create harm, right? And so you want to be able to share your stories in a space that's, again, going to be empowering and uplifting. And so sharing your stories, amplifying those, those stories and your voices is very important. But it's also important in the ways in which you do it and where you're amplifying your voices to ensure that it's going to strengthen the community and it's going to be nurtured and saved and passed on to individuals, you know, behind you. Right. Because that's that's the important part. And that's a lot of things that we miss. We lose within our history because 
some of the narratives and some of the voices have been taken and altered and, and, you know, sort of created for a specific narrative that is also often counteractive or, or counter to the original message of empowerment and uplifting uh, the community. And so I don't know if that directly answered the question, but it was more of a we need to be cognizant of where we're amplifying our voices. And, you know, you've seen sort of an uptick in Black networks, Black news stations, Black social media sort of channels that are trying to amplify voices. A lot of that has stemmed from, you know, the summer 2020, uh, some of that the racial injustice that has been hyper visible now. Um, so not to say that it hasn't been around before, but it's just now being more visible. It's hyper visible. And so people have started to act on that. But we'll see if that continues as we progress further and further from, you know, summer 2020 incidents. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And I absolutely think you answered Jess's question. And I appreciate that you answered it in a holistic way, because I think that you could have just focused on how to amplify voices and sort of get more narratives out there. But the fact that you also address the fact that sometimes narratives can be wielded as weapons, I think is really, is really, really important and very comprehensive. So thank you. And Jess, thank you for your question. We have a question from Julie from California. Hi, this is Julie from California. I was just wondering, in the wake of George Floyd's murder last year, we've seen a rise of what we know as a Black Lives Matter movement. And the question that I was wondering is, how has the movement changed the discourse around civil rights in our country? And has there been any tangible shift beyond policing? I'd be excited to hear all about this. Thank you for taking the time to hear my question. Have a great day. Yeah, that's a great question, Julie. Um, I think there's been some, there's definitely been some tangible, you know, sort of improvements that go beyond policing, um, especially if you think about the voting movement and getting people registered to vote. Um, I think that that was something that was very strong, obviously evident within these past elections. So the power of the Black voice, not only the Black voice, but just the racialized minority voice. And so we've seen sort of that tangible evidence. And so I think the the Black Lives Matter movement overall has generated this positive thought. But again, just we were talking about with the narratives and sort of narratives being taken and weaponized against you, we've seen a lot of that too, right? To where the Black Lives Matter movement is no longer about a movement, but we are tying it to Black Lives Matter as an organization, right? And so if some people have problems with Black Lives Matter as an organization. And so they, they find the one thing on their website or about their mission that they don't agree with. And then so they use that one thing to try to overtake this entire movement. And so just as much as there's progress, there's also uh, this weaponization of maybe one thing that someone doesn't like or taking something out of context and really trying to apply it to a, an entire movement to try to counteract that change. And so, you know, to answer the question, yes, there's been a lot of positive to come from the movement, but we're seeing right now, you know, from a political standpoint and voting rights and gerrymandering of all of these states, right, that there is an active push to counteract the Black Lives Matter movement. And so just as much as there's been positive, you see this active resistance and trying to subdue that voice and subdue the progress that has happened thus far, not only within policing, but within voting rights and for social justice initiatives overall. Thank you so much. And thank you, Julie, for 
asking the question. I think it was a really, it goes deep and it's a really important question. This is more in regards to policing itself, but I, I feel like I'd be remiss in, if I didn't mention this, but in season one of the podcast, we actually did an episode entitled Black and Blue, which centered on Black police officers and the criminal justice system and how biased the criminal justice system often is towards uh, racialized minorities. So we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, just in case any of our listeners want to check that out. But yes, as as Jonathan stated, that policing is just a part of the overall picture, just as Black Lives Matter as an organization is just part of an overall movement to affect social change. And yeah, it's important, I think, to to recognize the expansiveness of it and to recognize some of the ways in which these things are being overly reduced or co-opted or misappropriated in ways that actually detract from some of the most beautiful and meaningful opportunities to actually create systemic change. Indeed, indeed, Darylison. I definitely love that episode. Uh, that was one of my favorite from season one, uh, just like some of these past episodes are my favorite from season two. I don't know if that makes me biased, but uh, is what it is. <laughs> and uh, Jonathan, we have another calling question. This one's from an anonymous caller. Hello, I do have a question. We often see on social media the importance of supporting Black-owned businesses. How can someone do that in areas of the country where Black people represent a smaller percentage of the population or that information might not be readily available. Thank you. Uh, that's that's a, a great question, important question too. It's really about being intentional. And so what a, being intentional also means putting effort into it. And not to say that the effort's not there, it, it takes a lot of digging. And so if you're not in an area that has a high population of Black people or even Black businesses, it's on, on you to sort of reach out and find that information. And so there are different resources. I mean, we, we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. I know that they have resources there. There's a sort of a plethora of sort of organizations now that are putting information out there about Black businesses. But it's really, I mean, a lot of these businesses sort of start at the grassroots level. And so social media um, is a good way to sort of find Black businesses. Um, a lot of Black businesses don't have brick and mortar stores. So a lot of them, you know, run online and, and are able to ship products and stuff like that to you. And so it's just really being intentional about tapping into networks and finding networks uh, that are available to you. And it's also, I, I guess I'll go back to the networks thing. It, it is tapping in and being intentional about those networks um, in which you are, are going to, and also for the intention that you're doing it for. Um, and so I think sometimes, Black businesses can also be protective of their product in, you know, regards of that, well, we don't want something to be co-opted as we've talked about, or we don't want something to just be, we don't want you to buy something or support our business just to say, hey, I supported Black businesses. We want you to do it because it's a good product. And because oftentimes if, if something is Black, we talked about the HBCUs, if something is Black, it's, all, it's often seen as deviant or less than or not as good of quality. And that's not the case. So we want you to buy it and be supporting black businesses because you believe in the product and because you think it's quality, not just because you want to, you know, you want to be in right now and support black businesses. Indeed. And even to add on to that, uh, I'm proud to say that this was probably the first holiday season where I purchased the majority of the gifts I bought from black owned businesses and almost all of it online. Uh, we're in the world of, 
of Web 2.0. So you can go online, you can go on Amazon, they even have pages from black creators and owners and business owners. Um, so I encourage you to do that. You know, uh, the, the candles at the stores are really enticing, but there's a lot of black folk out there making candles in their basement uh, that are fantastic. And you can order from them and have them shipped right to you. So I do encourage folks to uh, to look online uh, if they're having some trouble finding uh, ways to support black owned businesses. Love that. Thank you both. And I want to chime in and say too, that in addition to supporting black owned businesses, I think it's also important to not support businesses that are discriminatory in their practices. And so to also do a little bit of intentional research around that and to look at, you know, if you're shopping, I don't want to mention specific companies because I feel like we could get sued, you know, if I mentioned some specific companies. But there's a lot, you know, if you do a Google search about some companies that have discriminatory hiring practices or that have actively taken a stance against BLM, there are companies that do harm that I think in stopping patronizing those, that's like one step. And also supporting Black-owned businesses is another step. But I encourage people to do both and to really do the research around that. Because dollars are, in some ways, they, they are the votes that we get to cast every single day, right? Where we pay our money. Like we get to vote every four years for president, but we get to vote every single day with our, you know, with our consumerism practices. And so thinking critically, about not just who you buy from, but also who you don't buy from, I think is a really important practice. So Jonathan, there's an email question from a listener named Kay. And Kay writes, thank you so much for the podcast. It's such a valuable resource and I'm learning so much. One thing I am wondering, I want to do my part to dismantle systems, but I am also a practical person. And there are times when speaking up for what's right can be risky. So how do I make a positive impact without putting myself or those I care about at risk? That's tough. And it's a great question because I think it's something that a lot of people are confronting right now. How do we create change without potentially sacrificing something? And oftentimes it, it takes that. It takes being willing to sacrifice. I wouldn't say sacrifice. You know, in order to get the, the highest reward, there comes some risk. And so if you are in a privileged position, you have to make the call. Is it, I don't know your personal situation, right? Is the risk Worth it? Can you afford to take a risk such as that to potentially put your job on the line or to put sponsorships on the line or whatever the case may be? But oftentimes, in order to create and to shake up some of these structures, we need people who are in privileged positions to take those risks. If you are not in a privileged position, it's a little bit harder to take those risks, but they're still necessary. So there's different ways around it. I'm not a confrontational person. And so the way I go about things is I like to shake things up, but I do it in a way that's framed around professionalism. And so if we talk about throwing shade professionally or, or whatever the case may be, I'm probably a pro at doing that. And so the way that I create change, I try to put things in people's minds and let it marinate with them. And that's what I do to create change. Whereas other people who I may work with or who I may know are more, you know, forward facing, but those individuals often have more privilege for me based on their identities. And so they feel a little bit guarded in what they do and how they create change. And so I think one of just the easiest ways to go about it without having risk is just asking questions, asking questions of your boss, asking questions of people you work with, you know, why do we do some of the things that we do? Why is it this way? Why is it that way? And see what the explanation is, right? And, and try to come back with 
evidence or with data or, or whatever the case may be, it's hard for people to, even though we see it all, often, it's hard for people to really uh, combat uh, evidence. And so I think that that's one way to do it that sort of minimizes your risk there. But that's a difficult question for me to answer because I'm always for people in privileged positions really taking on that risk uh, because it's something that they haven't had to do, but it's something that is necessary in order for us to create these equitable systems. Thank you so much for that, Jonathan. And thank you, Kay, for asking the question because I'm certain that other people listening have that question as well. We have another question, Jonathan, that I think is going to be right up your alley from a listener in Columbus, Ohio. So Courtney wrote in and asked, I was really interested in your recent Q&A episode and your discussions about sports. What is the current role sports should play in supporting the healing of the Black community in the wake of major events? Is it enough for sports teams to use themselves as symbols to spread awareness? What should be the next steps? So yeah, Jonathan, I feel like you might have something to say. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of right up my alley. Sports is is interesting because if you look at anything past sort of the junior high, middle school level, there's usually some form of capitalism in there, right? Where we're we're thinking about money and we're thinking about our bottom line. And so, you know, right now it's it's cool to be in with Black Lives Matter movement or it's cool to be in with black people because you're gonna see that return on your investment per se. And so, you know, if you think about Nike and summer 2020, when they're revamping their Colin Kaepernick and their social justice messaging, and then you see their sales skyrocket, you know, the NFL gets pressure to invest in some of these social justice initiatives. And so you see it's cool right now, but when we look past the surface level, what does that really mean? So a lot of the time sports sort of puts on this facade that, hey, we really care or that, hey, diversity is good. But then if you look at their systems and their practices, it really raises some eyebrows as to do they really care. And so I think from an imaging perspective, it's good that sport has sort of, in a way, and I won't say sport holistically because that's not the case. And some aspects of sport have moved towards uh, diversity and inclusion and standing up for, for Black lives, but they still do the same things. Right, We can throw money out, the NFL can throw money out to some of these racial justice initiatives, social justice initiatives, but they're the same league who has still denied Colin Kaepernick a job. Right, They're the same league who has end racism in their end zone, but right underneath there, they still have the Kansas City Chiefs name in it. Right, So this is the same league that may say, hey, oh, we're good with this. But they're the same league with owners who are supporting these initiatives that are counteracting Black Lives Matter. Um, and so we see owners who are not kneeling because they want to keep up with their other side of the fan base that, you know, is anti-Black Lives Matter, is anti-kneeling and anti-protest, uh, because that also affects their, their bottom line as well. And so I think what we need to see moving forward is we need to see altruistic investment for Black communities, for social justice initiatives. And so what that means is not only putting, you know, your money into these initiatives, which is good, but what are you doing to fundamentally change the way you do things and to change sort of your perspective? And so instead of saying, hey, we're going to throw money towards this police initiative or we're going to throw money to, you know, get people registered to vote and the campaign for people to register to vote, instead of turning around and sort of both sides in the situation, it's, oh, we're going to pick a side and we're really going to invest in that. And so you're going to see some losses probably, but 
you have to be able to take that risk and to really invest in this social justice movement in order to see the greatest return. And that even goes further when we look at the NFL and we look at they just ended this race norming perspective when we talk about funding CTE research and and the returns that they're given to black players versus white players is based on this this race norming scale. And so they just ended that because they they had to settle into a lawsuit. And so again, we can put forth this imaging and this messaging that, hey, you know, Black Lives Matter trying to create equitable systems, but we're still doing things that are counteractive to that messaging. If we look at players from a player perspective, what are we doing to invest in our players from a from a college level perspective where I spend most of my time researching, right, what is the power of the black athlete at the college level? If we look at how coaches treat their players and treat black players, are we really creating systems that are equitable or do we still see our black athletes as less than from a power standpoint? And so those are these are a lot of things that the sport world has to interrogate as opposed to just putting on a show, singing, uh, lift every voice and sing, you know, for the preseason games or whatever the case was that the NFL did. We really have to invest and make people uncomfortable in these situations. And so I'll end with this is saying that sport has pushed the needle to the point of being uncomfortable, but they don't want to push the needle past being uncomfortable. And so they've pushed and pushed and pushed until oh, they can kind of both sides it. And we have happy fans on both sides of the, the aisle, but they won't push into that other side of the aisle. Um, and start to create this change, which is really necessary. Thank you so much for saying all of that, Jonathan. You know, I'm a marketing branding guy. And when it comes to that, the first goal is your marketing and branding for your bottom line to make dollars. And hopefully some companies, that second goal or that second element of their branding is truly how they feel and and, and what they want to put out there from their company perspective. But you don't always see that. And uh, I think especially in sports, it's a good example of the difference uh, between the two. And I definitely want to chat with you again once we have our uh, diversity in sports episodes coming out. That's going to be probably a month or so from now. I'm super excited and can't wait to get your perspective on on some of that. But we have one last listener question for you, Jonathan. This one was submitted uh, anonymously uh, on our website portal. And um, I won't read the entire email, but to the listener, thank you so much for being so open with us. And thank you for all you what you shared about yourself and your struggles. I'll tell you, Jonathan, and those listening that the person who wrote in shared some personal struggles about their mental health journey and essentially uh, made a couple of observations, uh, which I'm going to turn into questions. So for the first question for you, Jonathan, number one, how can we normalize therapy as acceptable and okay for Black people to pursue for themselves? And the second is, can culture fill in the gaps uh, or does it sometimes get in the way of people getting the mental health help that they really and truly need? Yeah, I will answer the second question first, because absolutely culture can get into the way of people really getting that help that we need. Because what have we seen sort of historically, if we, we think about the Black community and sort of our this notion of therapy or counseling, right? Especially for Black men, it was like, oh, well, Black men don't show emotions. Black men shouldn't cry. Black men shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. And so then going to expressing that emotion or going to therapy counseling makes you look weak or we perceive it to make you look weak. And so that's this culture that we've sort of created ourselves. So absolutely culture can stop you from going to get the help that you need. But I also think that 
culture in another way can stop that too, because there are rightfully so stories of Black people not having the best experience. And those those experiences are real. Sometimes we let those experiences then scare us into not getting that help out of fear that a similar situation will happen. And so while culture can can sort of stop us, we have to be better as a collective of sharing the good stories as well um, and sharing the positive stories about therapy uh, as well. And so hopefully to answer the first question, we just have to be open and honest. Being vulnerable in situations, it's hard. It's hard to be vulnerable in a situation. You know, at a point in, in, in time, it was hard to come out and say, you know, as a Black person, I'm going to, to counseling or I'm going to therapy. But I think we're starting to see that come up more and more now that, hey, it's okay to not be okay. Um, it goes back to this the discussion we had about pain and joy, right? We oftentimes will mask that with working harder as opposed to getting the help that we need to get. So we need to share those stories. We need Black men to be vulnerable and to share those stories with other Black men. We need Black women to be vulnerable as well and share those stories with other Black women. But we also need to elevate those Black mental health professionals that are in the field that can do the work that, that needs to be done and that we can go to without this fear of, oh, well, they don't really understand the things that I'm going through. So they're giving me sort of this blanket Eurocentric sort of ideal of, oh, this is what I need to do in order to try to mitigate this problem. And so I think I think it's, it's multifaceted and that we have to share our stories, uh, amplify those voices and our experiences um, of getting that help. Uh, I do think that in some regards, culture, your community around you can sort of play that role as a counselor, as a healing space. But sometimes you need to take a, a take a step outside of your network and go and talk to someone who is trained to have these conversations as well. And so it's definitely multifaceted. You can find that comfort. You can find that help in many different areas. But of the utmost importance is sharing those experiences and letting people know that it's okay to get that help as well. Jonathan, thank you so much for that answer. And to the person who wrote in, thank you for your vulnerability in sharing with us. And just thank you. And speaking to that point about stories and sharing stories and the silencing of voices and the amplification of voices, one question that I have, Jonathan, in the interview I did with Channing Gerard-Joseph, Channing spoke about the erasure of queer histories and queer Black histories. And I remember he specifically said something that, that has stayed with me. He said, you know, family trees are a record of heterosexual behavior. And he talked a lot about how Black narratives have been silenced historically and and how difficult it is to kind of find out information on his Black ancestors and then how doubly challenging it is to find information on his Black queer ancestors. And I've been thinking a lot about the issue of which histories are told and which stories are amplified and how certain stories are erased and will never be known and never be told. And I'm just wondering if you have any reflections, insights, comments, about how to bring stories forward, the spectrum of stories, painful, joyful, everything in between, to make sure that they aren't silenced and pe- important memories aren't being erased. Yeah, I think it really just comes from, it starts with an acknowledgement that, hey, there was something wrong or there's something missing here. Because, you know, oftentimes we talk about rectifying racism or, or challenging racism and we often ask white people to acknowledge that racism or something exists, I think the same could be said within 
the black community of like, hey, this is an area where we've been wrong. We need to acknowledge it so that we can then move forward, right? We can say, hey, you know, some of our history is erased. Some of our history has intentionally been erased. How do we rectify that? And so first it begins with an acknowledgement and we have to create that understanding within uh, our community to say, hey, these stories are just as important as, you know, stories on the other side. And so we have, you know, let tradition sort of guide us in in that regard and to allow us to continue to erase certain perspectives and certain voices, especially Black queer perspectives. Um, And so I think that that that's something that is not going to change overnight, but it's something that we as a community have to grapple with and say, hey, why, why is this history not there? Why are we not elevating these voices? And we have to sort of have this sort of awakening within our community as we're continuing to do the work outside of our community as well. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Jonathan, let me know, what what were some major takeaways you had from these uh, three Black Voices episodes? Yeah, so I I wrote wrote a few of them down, just so, you know, I'm an academic, so I got to have some notes here. Uh, In the Black history one, since I'm a sports guy, uh, you know, the discussion about the disparities in in coaching salaries, that that comment was brought up and, and really resonated with me with some of the work that I'm doing, and not only... Was it a problem then? It's still a problem now. Inequitable structures that are in place for, you know, Black people in sports uh, is definitely evident. But really within the Black pain discussion, the artist that you had on and the reggae artist you had on there said, no one wants to talk about racism. And that just really stuck with me because it's so emblematic of the time that we're in. People want to be good with Black Lives Matter, be in with the, the Black crowd but we're in at the surface level. And so we don't talk about racism. We don't talk about the underlying problems that our society should be dealing with. And so again, sort of going back to the comment about putting a bandaid over a, a deep wound, it just doesn't, doesn't really work. It doesn't fix the problem. And so I thought that that was important, but then also just black pain in general, there was a discussion about resentment and how that resentment sort of comes out. And I think that is important because Resentment is is hard to to catch. Sometimes you can you can notice it, but sometimes it's just sort of underlying and and it'll come out eventually. But it's something that can build and build and build, and you don't know how to identify it until it comes out at the wrong place or the wrong time. And so I think that that is really that was an important takeaway for me. Is am I resentful of anyone? Am I resentful? And I believe the discussion was around family too. And so even for me, like without having my dad in my life, really, am I resentful for that? Am I okay right now? But deep down, am I resentful at all? Do I carry any negative feelings? And I have to grapple with that myself so that I can then move forward and, again, have more space in my cup to be joyful. Um, And so to me, the the Black pain really was important. I'm glad that that was before the Black joy episode because we have to confront our pain in order to experience 
uh, that joy and to experience the the full potential of that joy. And so I guess the, one of the last takeaways that I had is just with Black joy in general, and that it was uplifting to me. That that episode was uplifting and being able to, you know, hear about people telling their stories and also this notion of love that was transparent throughout that episode. And I think one of the, the quotes was talking about counteracting hate, racism, and division with love. I mean, I thought that that was something that resonated with me too, because as someone who is a critical scholar who wants to challenge all these systems, sometimes that love is not there. Sometimes there's a lot of resentment and hate in which is driving me to sort of challenge these, these systems, which, you know, rightfully so, there's some hurt there. But how can I also challenge some of these systems with love and out of a sense of love to be able to have that joy as well? So those are just a few takeaways there, so, sort of a long way to answer. But those, there was a lot of stuff, a lot of good nuggets of information within those podcasts. Yeah, thank you so thank much. You. And I appreciate you bringing in your personal experiences and talking about the need to confront resentment and pain prior to being able to move into joy. And I'll just share on a personal level, I think most of the listeners know about this. I'm not particularly secretive about it, but I um, struggled for decades with an eating disorder. I was rampantly anorexic and bulimic, and I was institutionalized 18 times. And for me, you know, part of the problem was an unwillingness to confront my own pain and the trying to sort of push it down. And what I found was that I couldn't, I couldn't move to that space of love or joy without confronting pain. And it's not really a destination, right? There's ongoing work to be done to stay in that, in that space. And so I really appreciate your acknowledgement. Like we can't shortcut the work, right? That there has to be a real reckoning with pain and struggles if things are going to change uh, in meaningful and sustainable ways. So I really appreciate that. So Jonathan, how can people support the work that you're doing personally and professionally? Like how can our listeners support you? So as I mentioned before, I do, you know, consultant work and I come and do speeches, lectures, workshops, um, things of that nature. So you know, you can follow me on, on social media. I, I share my research there. That's sort of where I, I get my, you know, I try to make my scholarship public. And so in order, you know, not trying to keep it within the realm of academia and just other scholars looking at it, but also making it public. And so, you know, on Twitter, I'm at Dr. underscore how. So that's at Dr. H-O-W-E 25. And then on Instagram, I'm at John Howe underscore PhD. Uh, so that's J O H N H O W E underscore PhD. And I share some of my work there. Um, but also on my website, if you want to contact me, you can contact me through any of those social media platforms, but also on my website, which is Jonathan E. Howe. Uh, and there's no H in Jonathan. I know I, it gets confusing with John and Jonathan. So J O N A T H A N, the letter E, and H O W E. Dot com. You can get on there. You can see some of the work that I do, but also there's a contact me form there. So if you want to get in touch with me about any of the work that I do, potentially bring me in and you can contact me there as well. So happy to, to get involved and to share my expertise and my knowledge in any way uh, that you may see fit. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for that. We will put links to all of those contacts in the show notes so that people can can click those and not have to go back and, <laughs> and try to re-listen and get that spelling down. Were there things, Jonathan, that we didn't talk about in this Q&A conversation today or in any of the three episodes that you would have wanted to say or wanted to speak to? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I brought it up a little bit and we talked about it today. But this notion of, of whiteness and wanting to protect whiteness, I think I just want to reemphasize that because when I'm thinking about this, a lot of times from my personal experience, that's something that I've had to confront. And I guess the, the, no, the notion that I take with it is that I've come to a realization that I've wanted to protect white tears all my life. And that's something that was inherent with me. I didn't want to make white people uncomfortable. I subdued my experiences in order to continue to have a positive environment. Again, I'm not confrontational. And so a lot of the times I would subdue how I was feeling or I would just brush it off as a comedic relief or something like that. So I didn't have to confront uh, some of these underlying issues. And so what I really have learned is that it's just this notion of me protecting whiteness. And I think from a Black community perspective, we can learn from that and we can make change happen if we're not always deferring to whiteness and protecting whiteness. Now, I'm not saying that we just have to demean or, or be angry or hurtful or resentful at white people, but we also have to put our needs as being equal or equitable to white people as well. So don't subdue and create more harm and more pain inside of you to try to protect someone else from confronting an issue. And so that's something that I think is important to acknowledge and to take away is that if we want to have this joy, part of that pain is also confronting and being in uncomfortable situations. And so being sure that you're placing yourself, your mental health, your psychological, your physical health at the utmost importance and being just as important, if not more important than protecting this notion of whiteness and what we've always done or, or what's comfortable, what's a good situation is something uh, that we should be able to take away from, from hopefully this episode and also from some of your uh, personalized experiences as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And dear Lisa, we have one last little tiny question for John, but before we get to that, uh, let's take a quick moment to do our Q and a book giveaway. Uh, yeah, sure. That's great. So we drew a name at random before starting this Q&A episode. And uh, Zach, do you want to announce our winner? Yes, our winner this week is Heather Hain. Uh, congratulations, Heather. You've won a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and its accompanying workbook. Yay, Heather, congratulations. We'll send you an email to get your information and mail you signed copies of the book and the workbook. And thank you for being a subscriber. And one more shout out, one more pitch that if you're listening to this, feel free to go to our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up to receive copies of the newsletter and possibly a free book and workbook. So last question, Jonathan, why do you do what you do? Why is this important to you personally? And why should it matter to others? Yeah, it goes back to this me search idea. I do what I do because I see myself in so many of the people I do work with. So my research, I see black male college athletes. I could see myself in them. Although I was not a collegiate athlete when I'm working when I was working with college athletes. And if I had on University of Texas apparel or something, I'm often mistaken for an athlete. But often, even outside of that, once we are outside of this athletic realm, 
we're black men at the end of the day, and they're going through some, the same stuff that I'm going through. So I see myself within this research. And so that motivates me to keep moving forward. But on the flip side of that, it motivates me because I want to create better systems for those individuals. And so I want to create a better system than what I had in place. And I think that that's something that keeps motivating me as well. This research that I do isn't, it definitely serves a purpose in academic currency. It's going to help me get my promotions, yes. But that's not the real motivation for doing it. The real motivation for doing it is to be able to confront these issues, to be able to then create positive social change. I just view it within the context of college athletics, but ultimately it's for creating this positive social change. So that's what keeps me motivated. That's what keeps me going. Sometimes research can get can get hard, it can get long, but that's what keeps me going is that I look back and I'm able to see myself and my participants. I'm able to see from a college athletic administrator perspective, that's something that I wanted to do. That's something I still sort of have an inkling to do. I see myself, I'm learning as I'm going. So I'm always learning and I'm always pushing forward to try to create this positive social change within college athletics. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us today. And thank you for all of our listeners, uh, wherever you are. If you are listening to this and want to get in touch with Jonathan, please contact him through his website. That's www.jonathanehow.com. Uh, we're going to put a link to that, uh, his website, in the show notes. Uh, and if you haven't already, please like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. If you'd like to ask us any questions or have any comments, please call us at 844-888-8148 and we'll try to answer or respond to uh, your questions in an upcoming Q&A episode. Also, uh, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. And uh, as always, every episode of Demystifying Diversity Podcast is written, uh, reported, and produced by Daryl Lee Lyons. Yeah, with the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Kreintz, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. And the music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. Thank you again, Jonathan, so much for joining us. This was such a rich conversation. And thank you to everyone listening, wherever you are. Please join us next week as we dive into a subject that impacts all of us. Um, we're going to be talking about ageism. So in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world. <laughs>